you have your Bibles with with you, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Two weeks ago we started looking closer at each verse that is taken from a scripture reading that was done on Easter Sunday. The first week we looked at what it means to be brought out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay that David describes in Psalm 40. Um, verse 2. Last week, Danny talked about what it means to be rescued from Colossians 1.13. And what we are looking at in this series as we go through these verses, these are truths that will absolutely change you if you believe them. And when I say believe, I'm not talking about simply being in agreement with these things. I mean, every one of us in here who consider ourselves Christians would say without a doubt that we believe these things, that, that we are in agreement with these truths. And what we're really saying is that, yes, I believe those are true statements. I agree with the veracity of what that is saying. But there is a big, big difference between being in intellectual agreement with something and believing something deep down in your heart. This past Wednesday in our class on on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which, by the way, is not a study of the Apostles' Creed. It's a study of the Scriptures and the spiritual truths that the Creed points to. If you haven't come yet, I would encourage you because it is great. But this past week, we were talking about the difference between knowing something versus believing something. You know, pretty much every one of us would say that, that we know the, these truths of the gospel to be true. We may agree with them and agree that they are true, but when you get right down to it, I don't know how many of us really believe these truths, because if we did, it would show in the way that we live. Belief always leads to action. Deep-rooted, soulful belief will always result in action. Simply knowing something may or may not. This is what James meant when he said in his letters that faith without works is dead. He is saying that if your faith, if your belief is genuine, then it is going to show in the way that you live. And so my prayer for this series of messages is that the Holy Spirit would cause us to go from simply knowing these truths to believing them deep down. And that that belief would be evident in the way that we live, in the way that we relate to God, and in the way that we relate to one another. So the truth that we are going to look at today is taken from Romans 5 verse 2. So let's all stand together as we look at this. We're actually going to start with verse 1. Paul is writing and he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that you have laid before us this morning. And God, I pray, just as I said a while ago, that this will be something that we don't, we're not just in agreement with, God, but it becomes part of the fiber of our very being. 
to where that belief just spills out in the way that we live. God, I believe that there is nothing that changes people more than your love. And so I pray that we would be overwhelmed by it and transformed by it this morning. Let us see Jesus for who he is and understand what he has done. That he may be glorified in everything we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Within about the next 20, 25 minutes or so, I'm going to attempt to correct a fundamental error that people have had for over 2,000 years in regards to what the gospel is versus what the gospel is not. Because you see, the way that the world operates that we are in on a daily basis and the way that we relate to one another as human beings and the way that our life experiences tend to shape us coupled with the sinful default nature that we still struggle and live with, you put all that together and those things can easily lead us into a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. And because of this one misunderstanding, you can be in just as much bondage attending church every week as you can be in jail or on drugs. You can be just as trapped just as helpless, just as lonely religiously as you can be irreligiously. And I'm going to show you in this text what the problem is regarding this one misunderstanding. Let's start by looking at the context that verse 2 is written in. Notice in verse 1 there, Paul starts verse 1 with the word therefore, which means he is going to tie everything that he just said into everything that he is about to say. And what Paul was saying in chapter 4 is that salvation is by faith alone rather than works. He was explaining how just Doing religious acts will not make you a religious person. Only faith, belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is the only thing that makes you righteous. And he draws from the Old Testament story of Abraham to show how it was faith that allowed Abraham to be considered righteous in the eyes of God. Paul's whole point in chapter 4 is that obedience to the law does not make you right with God. Only faith does. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, in other words, since faith is the only thing that makes you right with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in this letter, Paul writes about unbelief and its consequences. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says that because of unbelief or because of a lack of faith in what God has done through Jesus, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself from God. And in verse 9, he says that this wrath of God will bring tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. So in chapter 2 of Romans, unbelief or lack of faith causes you to come under and face God's wrath. But in chapter 5, faith in what God has done 
causes you to be at peace with God. Your faith, your belief in the truth that God's wrath for your sin was fully satisfied in the death of Jesus, that he absorbed God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. And if you believe that, you are at peace with God for eternity. And then verse 2 again, he says, Through whom, talking about Jesus, through Jesus we have obtained our introduction by faith. Another reminder, Paul's saying, again, in case you forgot just a few verses ago, in case you forgot in everything that I just said in chapter 4, again, it's by faith, not by works, our introduction into this grace in which we stand. What grace is he talking about? It's the grace that instead of having you earn salvation, it is freely given to you through faith. The grace that God's wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus instead of on you. The grace that since you can't make yourself right with God, he makes you right. It's his doing, not yours. The first point in your notes there is just a simple definition of grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. There is a lie that is being perpetuated in our our culture more and more. And the lie is that you deserve something. Anything good, you deserve it. I mean, just listen to the advertisements on television and the radio. This seems like to be the new thing in advertisements, trying to convince everyone that you deserve whatever it is that they're selling. You deserve the house of your dreams. You deserve to have the beautiful look that you desire. I think McDonald's probably started all this with one of their most uh, famous and uh, successful slogans that they had. You remember it? You deserve a what? A break today. Oh, gosh, yes, you deserve it. I even heard this used in a commercial for dog food. <laughs> Talking about the nutritional benefits of this dog, fruit, dog food, and it just wanted you to believe that your dog deserves it. Give your dog the health that he deserves. And then we reinforce this message with our kids with participation trophies. And the message is that everyone deserves a trophy. No, you don't. You came in last place. You don't deserve a trophy. What you deserve, if you want a trophy, you deserve to quit crying and go practice. Then we might talk about a trophy. And our culture is believing this lie more and more. And so now they're demanding everything under the sun from free college education to free health care. Why? Because people deserve it. Louder and louder is this demand for things that we deserve. And I despise this message because the more that you think you deserve something, the less appreciative of it you'll be when you get it. And the more that you think you deserve something, the less you'll work in order to get it. And then when you don't get the very things that you deserve, you will pitch a squall-eyed fit about it. 
It is a horrible, culture-destroying lie that is in direct opposition to the message of the gospel. Because the gospel says you don't deserve it. Because of your sin and your constant rebellion and because you think that your way is better than God's way and because you have claimed God's stuff as your own and because of your constant belittling of his great name, you want to know what you deserve? Next thing in your notes there if you're following along. You deserve God's wrath. And you deserve what Paul said in verse 9 of chapter 2. Tribulation and distress for your soul. Which is another way of describing hell. This is what you and I, everyone in here in this room, if you want to talk about what we deserve, that's it right there. Because of his love and his mercy, God provides a way for us to avoid it. And when you put your faith in him and what he has done in Jesus, the text says that you are introduced, literally brought into his grace. And because of his grace, what you actually get is peace with God. You get right standing before God. You get righteousness. It's not something that you work up on your own or or earn. It is freely given to you as a gift of his grace. You get the Father's full love and favor. You get what you don't deserve and what you could never earn. And the last point, faith is what places you in this grace of God. It's believing that Jesus has done what he says he has done. But here's what I really want us to get this morning. Notice that verse 2 says, We have obtained this introduction by faith into grace. That's past tense. But it also says, In which we stand. That's present tense. And this is where people struggle with the misunderstanding of the gospel, and they have for two millennia. You see, we have absolutely no problem with the past tense part of that. And many of us can even name the exact date and time that it happened. We know, we believe that it was by faith alone that we were saved by God's grace. But after that, many of us seem to have have bought into the fact and believe that we now have to somehow earn the right to keep it. It's as if our initial salvation was all God's work, but from then on, it's ours. It's up to us. Faith is what got me God's grace, but good behavior and church attendance and daily quiet times and a whole list of other religious activities is what it's going to take to keep me there. And I'm sure some of you have even been under some preaching and teaching that promotes that misunderstanding there's some of you you've got no problem at all believing that faith in Jesus spared you from God's wrath at one point but now every time you sin every time you fall you're right back under it again and so every bad thing that happens to you in life you automatically assume that that is God's wrath punishing you for what you have done 
Some of you are under so much shame, you just know that God has got to be looking at you through a lens of wrath rather than a lens of love. This misunderstanding of the gospel is that, yes, faith alone gives us access to the grace and the peace of God, but what level of it we receive from then on depends on us and what we do. If I'm bad, then that peace must be tenuous at best. That grace has got to be on shaky ground and not very stable. And for many of you, the way that you live, the way that you relate to God just shows that you believe that grace is a very fragile thing that you can break very easily. And When you do mess up, you think you have broken it, and so now you've got to do everything you can to make up for that and somehow put that all back together. I believe I told you before that in our house we only have one channel in our television. We just decided not to have satellite and cable, which it's not a problem except for in football season. But um, we have one channel. It's a local channel out of Tyler that comes through our antenna. And having one local channel means having to endure the same commercials over and over and over again. They're usually locally produced commercials, which, you know, the quality level just isn't quite there as much. You know, you always wonder how much television influences your children. And you would think with just one channel and the few commercials that we have to endure, probably not that much influence. But um, just a few weeks ago, my family, we were driving through Sulphur Springs, and it was kind of quiet in the van, and all of a sudden my 8-year-old daughter, Hopes, gasps excitedly, just about sucking all the air out of the van. She just, oh! <gasps> And I was driving, and of course, I was like, what? Who's about to hit me? You know, it scared me, but she was just, we looked at her, what? She goes, it's Title Max. (laughs) Okay? And I realized Title Max is one of the commercials that we watch over and over and over again. And she had heard so many times, Title Max is this celebrity status thing, and then lo and behold, there it was, in brick and mortar, right there in front of her. (laughs) So yes, that one commercial had a lot of influence on an eight-year-old girl, and so um, if she ever wants a car and has bad credit, she knows right where to go. (laughs) (laughs) But there's one business on this channel that airs its commercial way more than any other one, especially in the mornings. I mean, it's like every other commercial is there, and it's a commercial for Window World. How many of you have seen the Window World commercials? Am I the only one that has an antenna? (laughs) Okay, some people have. Well, there's one thing that they do at the end of every commercial, trying to be catchy and get people to remember them, And at the end of the thing, the owner of Window World stands there, and he's got one of their windows down on the ground in front of him. And his same line at the end of every commercial is, at Window World, not only do we stand by our windows, but we stand on them. 
and he steps up and stands on his window. I have seen this at least a thousand times and can probably recite it in my sleep. But now they have changed things up a little bit. They have this older couple on there who's now given testimony about how great the windows are that they bought from Window World. And so now at the end of the commercial, they're standing there with the owner and he's changed his little saying. So now he says, at Window World, not only do we stand on our windows, but our customers do too. And all three of them step up on the window there. Of course, they do that to illustrate just how strong their windows are so that you won't think that these are just cheap panes of glass that they're selling you that's going to break the first time a storm comes through. And the reason I said all that was because this verse here in Romans 5-2 made me think of that commercial. Because guess what? God's grace isn't fragile either. Not only does faith introduce you into grace at the moment of salvation, but his grace is so strong and so lasting and so stable that you continue to stand on it from here to the end of eternity. Every time you fall, you stand on his grace. Every time you sin, you stand on his grace. Every time Satan tries to lie to you and convince you that God doesn't like you, you stand on his grace. Every time you feel lonely, you stand on his grace. Every time you feel like you're not good enough, you feel like you're not worthy, you stand on his grace. If you couldn't stand on his grace in any and all circumstances, then it wouldn't be grace at all. If grace was something that you could lose, it wouldn't be grace. If it was something that you had to earn or had to get back because somehow you lost it or had to make up for, it wouldn't be grace because by its own definition, grace is the most solid and secure thing that you can rely on in the whole universe. And the reason I say that is because grace doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. It doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what he has already done. You know, one of the most common excuses you hear of why people don't go to church. Oh, church is full of nothing but hypocrites. And every time someone says that to me, you know what I say? I'll agree with them. I say, you're right. Church is full of hypocrites. I know because I'm the pastor of one. But how incredible is God that he loves madly such a rotten, hypocritical people. How amazing is that? A people who continually betray him, who do what they know is wrong at the expense of what they know is right, a people who constantly believe that they are smarter than God and want to do things their way all the time instead of his way and God's response to all that. Patience and love and mercy and grace for those who believe. That blows me away. What makes the church beautiful is not that it's filled with perfect people. It is not. What makes the church beautiful is that it's actually filled with rotten and broken people who deserve God's wrath, but instead find his grace and his mercy. 
For those of you who walked in here today thinking, I am unworthy of God's love, guess what? You're right. But that doesn't matter because it's not about you. And it's actually what makes this so spectacular. You absolutely aren't worthy. You absolutely are unclean and have no right to even speak his name without him destroying you and striking you dead. But what you get just by faith is his patience, his mercy, his grace, and more love in him than you will ever come close to finding in any other person in this world. This misunderstanding of the gospel where we think we've got to do something in order to remain in God's favor and grace. Like I said, it's not something new, and we know that because Paul had to address this in nearly every church that he planted. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, I want to remind you, brethren, the gospel I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. Now, you've got to keep in mind, these weren't lost people that Paul was writing to. These are folks who had heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were now saved and a part of God's people. It was a regular habit of Paul's to preach the gospel to those who had already heard it and believed it. Why? Because someone who has been a Christian for 40 years needs the gospel just as much as someone who has never heard it. Because this world constantly tries to convince us that standing on, to, to stand on anything but the sufficiency of Christ, Paul is constantly reminding us that our standing with God has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. And notice how he said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.1 as he says in Romans 5.2. He says, you received it, past tense, and now you stand on it, present The grace that initially saved you and placed you in God's love is the same exact grace that maintains you there still. Now this next thing I'm about to say is not in your notes there, but I'm going to put it up on the screen because I think it's important that some of you hear this. Some of you need to chew on this and let it sink in. It's very simple, but it can change your life if you actually believe it. And that is this. What had everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with you, still has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with you. It still does. Nothing has changed. Paul's whole letter to the church in Galatia was all about this very misunderstanding. The entire letter was. In Galatians 3, Paul comes off very frustrated. And in verse 1, he says, You fools, who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? And in verse 3, Are you so foolish to think that what began by the Spirit, you are now perfecting in the flesh? These Christians were led astray into believing that God's grace initially saved them and brought them into salvation, but then obedience to God's law is what would keep them saved. And Paul calls them fools for believing that. 
Paul is screaming about this to every church he planted in the ancient world. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, which leads me to scream it to you today. Your hope, your rest, your satisfaction, your joy is found in Jesus and Him alone. It's not found in your achievements. It's not found in your social status, your material possessions. It's not found in your boyfriend or even your spouse. He loves you and He is pleased with you and He is for you. And none of it has anything to do with you has everything to do with him and what he's done for you. Now then, I'm going to be pretty direct with some of you in here for just a moment. If I was a betting man, I think it would be a pretty safe bet to assume that there are some of you in here whom you think you are saved Because when you were seven years old, a Sunday school teacher or your parent asked you if you'd rather go to heaven or go to hell, and you said heaven, because I've never met a seven-year-old yet who would say, torture for eternity? Yeah, I want that. Or maybe you think you're saved because at one point a long time ago, you repeated a prayer after somebody, and that's what saved you. But there is no real affection at all in you. There never was any repentance, no real life change. There's no desire in you to want to do good and no brokenness or repulsion when you do sin. But you think that because you said yes to heaven or because you repeated a prayer and your attendance to church on Sundays makes you good with God and somehow saves you. If that's your story, I know that what I'm about to say may sound harsh to some of you, but I would not be a good pastor if I didn't say it no more than I wouldn't be a good parent if I didn't warn my kids of the dangers of crossing the street. But if what I just described sounds like you, unless God is merciful, merciful to you, you have a very terrifying future in front of you. Very terrifying. Because you can't trick God. You can't hide from Him. You can't hide your motives. You can't hide your actions. He knows. And because He knows, if your hope is is in what you did when you were seven and not solely in what Christ has done, then you're in trouble. To those of you who do have that assurance in Christ, he knows you too. And you can't hide anything from him either. But the good news of the gospel is that he does know you And yet he extends grace, mercy, and love. Every day. It is that kindness of God that leads us into repentance. And a complete life change. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Where there is no true repentance, there's never been any 
life change, any turning around at all, I think you have to wrestle with whether or not you're really saved. And if you're not, I'm telling you right now that that can all change this morning. Because the Father's offer of mercy and grace is being extended to you right now. For those who do belong to him, he wants to remind you that his grace is just as strong and secure for you today as it was on the day that he rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his son. Stand on that grace. Live from that grace. And you will exult in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are just here with us right now and that you are working in the hearts of people that you have chosen for an incredible thing, for a great and glorious day. Lord, I believe that you have been looking forward to this day in someone's life since before they were even born. Somebody that comes to true repentance and puts their trust in you for the very first time and experiences that heart transformation. And God, even those who, who may have believed in you, but these truths of, of how secure your grace is, Lord, they're just now getting a full revelation of that. It's an incredible thing. Holy Spirit, let that happen because we can't grasp this on our own. Your grace is too big for us to comprehend with our human brains. We are too small, too incapable, too insignificant to grasp the immensity of your grace that doesn't even make sense to the way that we're used to operating with one another. So, Lord, I'm asking you to, to do what only you can do. Have your way. Just lay our hearts before you and ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.